is God's word. Well, I don't know about you, but Christmas is a magical time, and it's in full force. Have you noticed how the lights are all out in your neighborhood? Isn't that fun when the, you know, darkness comes and all of a sudden all the lights are turned on and, and your neighborhood is transformed into a winter wonderland? I don't know about you, but my family has a tradition. We get in the car and we drive around to some neighborhoods and we look just to enjoy all the lights. And, and we also go down to the uh, boardwalk, you know, where they do the Chick-fil-A lights or whatever it is now where you can drive through and you see all the lights. It's like it's a fairy tale or something. Well, my kids are really excited, and Maria in particular will be walking along, and Maria will involuntarily burst out, I can't wait for Christmas, because she's so excited. You know, it's a magical time Christmas is. It's even full of these fairy tale-like stories, you know, Father Christmas, Santa Claus, and elves who make presents, and trips to the North Pole. There's something about Christmas that's different than any other holiday, right? Nobody bursts out, I can't wait for St. Patrick's Day. Or, oh my gosh, Boxing Day. I can't wait for Boxing Day. No, Christmas is special. I want to suggest to you that Christmas is almost like a fairy tale. In fact, it's the fairy tale that all other fairy tales are founded upon. I don't know if anyone watches this show, Once Upon a Time. Anybody see that show? Heard of that show? Why would you? There's 180 cable channels. You can see whatever you want. Well, this Once Upon a Time, I think it's on ABC, primetime TV. The whole concept is that there's this fairy tale land, but the Wicked Witch of the West has gone ahead and sent Snow White and these fairy tale characters into a land where there will be no happy endings. I wonder where that would be. Well, it's Maine, apparently. They're in Maine. This someplace terrible where there be no happy endings. And the problem is that everything has fallen in this land. Things don't work like they should, and they're trying to figure this thing out. It's kind of like a fairy tale where everything has gone wrong. You know, when I saw that show, I thought a little bit about life here on planet Earth, because life here is sort of like a fairy tale where everything has gone wrong. Globally, we think about this world and all of the injustice in it. The poverty and the problems and the corruption and the greed. And yet when you look at the planet from outer space and you see this beautiful celestial orb, somehow Earth is a fairy tale where things have gone wrong. You may be feeling like your life is like a fairy tale where things have gone wrong. You know, I really wanted the prince, but somehow I've ended up with the frog. <laughs> I really wanted to be Cinderella. But I wake up in the morning and I look in the mirror and I look a lot more like the Wicked Witch of the West. I really was looking forward to riding off into the sunset, but I don't know if I'm going to have a job next week. It's a fairy tale where things have gone wrong. See, this passage here is the story of a fairy tale where things have gone wrong. See, the Israelites were a nobody people in Egypt enslaved. No future, no hope, no anything. But then there was this God that descended and told them that out of all the people of the earth, you will be my people. In fact, I will pull you out for the, from the greatest nation on the earth, Egypt, with my mighty hand and outstretched arm. And I will call you my people and I will bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Furthermore, I will give you my laws and statutes, and you will obey them, and I will dwell with you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. A fairy tale beginning. But God simply asked one thing. Be faithful to me. Be faithful to my laws that I've given you. Be obedient to my commands so that it will go well with you. Be faithful to me as I am faithful to you. And the problem is, Israel didn't. And now they are in the midst of a fairy tale that has gone wrong. Isaiah is writing this passage in around 730 uh, B.C., right in a time where the kingdom of Assyria has come and has plundered the Israelite people, has descended upon them like locusts, and has deported vast quantities of people over into Assyria. And so they're staring and they're wondering, what has happened to our fairy tale existence? Everything has gone wrong. But in this passage, Isaiah the prophet speaks of a hope. A hope that the fairy tale will be made right again. Verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, Isaiah is saying that fairy tale prince, he's coming. And when he is coming, he will bring a peace into your life. Because he will come and he will do three things. These are the things that we're going to talk about. Number one, he will come as your rescuer. He will rescue you from the land of darkness. But he will also come and he will be your ruler. Your righteous ruler. He will not only be rescuer, but he will be ruler. But even more than that, he will be your romancer. The prince that you have been looking for. But the message of God has always been the same message. That God can only be your peace if he is first your prince. And so we will look at these three points. These three things that God is talking about through this passage. Number one, that God will be your rescuer. Verse one, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Okay, what is he talking about here? When the Assyrians came, remember God said, if you're not faithful to me, you will be carried off into captivity. But when the Assyrians came, Tiglath-Pileser was the name of the king. They descended upon from the north because Assyria was to the north. And in the north, the northernmost part of Israel is the land of Naphtali and the land of Zebulun that make up the region of Galilee. See, this was the very place where the incursion occurred, where the destruction was the greatest, where the darkness was the fullest, where the people were carried off into captivity. And Isaiah is saying there will come a time when there is no more gloom. That though he brought this land into contempt, something else will happen in this latter time. He will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. See, this place Galilee, in which is Zebulun and Naphtali, this is the place where the light will dawn, where the darkness was the greatest. And this light that will dawn, this one who is given, will not just stay there. But he will go. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in the darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. See, this light that comes 
will go to the place where the people have been taken captive. The people who are dwelling in this land of darkness, this figurative Assyria where they are, this one, the child who is born, will come and he will rescue them. And what is it he will do? Verse 4 explains, For the yoke of his burden and the staff on his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as in the day of Midian. Now picture yourself in Assyria reading this prophecy. And don't you just want to say to Isaiah, you don't understand. We're in slavery here. We're in captivity. There's no hope for us. We're dwelling away from your temple, away from you in the land of darkness. How can you say that this staff will be broken? But Isaiah is saying that, yes, in fact, it will be done as in the day of Midian. Now, for some of you that may not know, Midian was the place where Gideon defeated the Midianites. Remember that great story, Gideon? He's leading against 100,000 uh, uh, Midianites, and he's got 30,000 people. And what does God say? you got too many people. I want you to get rid of them. Get rid of them. In fact, God pairs down the force of Israel to 300 men. And he says, with 300 men, I will deliver Israel from the Midianites. See what he's saying? With just one man, I will deliver you from the darkness that you are in right now. See, they have to be saying, you don't understand, Isaiah. There's no way that that's going to happen. But you see, it's them that don't understand. Because this one who has come is a rescuer. He has come to rescue them who are in darkness. Many of you are familiar with the story of Frederick Fritz Nieland. Though you don't know his name, you know him a little bit more as Private Ryan. Frederick Nieland had three other brothers during the World War II conflict. And all three of them were lost. The story of Saving Private Ryan is based out of that. And if you remember, during the fighting, during the storming of the beach in Omaha, two brothers are killed. And then a third brother uh, was actually killed earlier in New Guinea. And their mother, Mrs. Ryan, is to receive a telegraph, in fact, three telegraphs, that day informing her of what happened. Well, the Chief of Staff, George C. Marshall, is given the opportunity to alleviate some of her grief when he discovers this. And he dispatches a force. Remember Captain Miller, a ranger captain played by Tom Hanks and seven other guys, to go find Private Ryan and bring him home. There's only one problem. He's deep in enemy territory, deep in German territory. They don't know how to get to him. And so the story, Saving Private Ryan, is a rescue story. It's a story of these men going to find Private Ryan. And it's very interesting if you watch the movie and how the different guys, the seven guys in the command, waver as they're wondering, is it worth it to go through all of this to go find Private Ryan? But there's one man that doesn't waver, Captain Miller, Tom Hanks, who is unswerving in his mission, fully understanding the implications of what he is doing. Because Captain Miller understands that this is a rescue mission, and he will not quit until it is done. Remember at the very end, as Captain Miller gives up his life and tells Private Ryan to remember, remember what has been done for him. 
See, God is a rescuer. But so many of us don't see this one that he sent Jesus as a rescuer. We see him as an accuser. That giant hand in the sky saying, I told you so. See, the Israelites had chosen to run after other things than him. They were the reason that they were put in captivity. In the same way, we have hoped for things just like the Israelites that have put us in captivity, haven't we? The things that we run after, the petty gods that imprison us, our jobs, or the bottle, or the internet, the refrigerator, the house, the investments, the girl, or the guy. Petty gods that have led us into captivity. But our understanding of how we're going to get out of this mess is quite simple. You got yourself into this mess, get yourself out. God helps those who help themselves. So pull up your bootstraps and figure out a way out of this mess. Because if God came to rescue you, all he would do was be an accuser. But you see, Jesus meets us in Zebulun. He meets us in Naphtali. In the very place of our rebellion, in the very place of the darkness, that is where Jesus comes. Because he's not afraid of the darkness. And he's not afraid to go behind enemy lines. Jesus has come for a rescue mission. And he will not stop until he rescues us, even if it costs us his life. The question is, what will we say when he comes? Because Jesus can only be our peace if he is first our prince. Well, this leads me to my second point, that Jesus has come to be a rescuer, but he's also come to be a ruler. We, we get it in the fairy tales, don't we? You know, He comes, the rescuer, the guy on the steed comes in and he saves him, and what do they do? They live happily ever after. Well, what's the problem? There's a tomorrow to happily ever after, isn't there? The real question we have to ask is, what is this rescuer saving me into? He's saving us into his rule. Listen to the pedigree of this rescuer who is also a ruler. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This one who is given is given to us. He's a child, he's a son, he's one like us. But the government shall be on his shoulder. And we all understand this concept. The shoulder is the most powerful part of the body. You know, if you really want to move something, what do you have to do? You have to put your shoulder into it. And he's saying that the government shall be upon his shoulder. The rule of the world shall be on his shoulder. Indeed, the increase of his government shall have no end. Now, how can he, a man, manage the government of the world when so many have failed? The reason is because he is mighty God. He's not only man, but he's also God. How does that work? I have no idea. But he's mighty God, and so he has the power of God. The power to control the elements. The power over hurricanes and famine and pestilence and evil. He has the power of God, but he also has the wisdom of God. For he is the wonderful counselor. 
You know, all kings or presidents assemble a cabinet around themselves, don't they? They need counselors to help them understand what to do because they are fallible men. But this man, God, needs no counselor because he is the wonderful counselor. He has the counsel and wisdom of God. He has power and he has wisdom, but he also has love because he is everlasting Father. This does not mean he is God the Father, but rather he rules over his people as a father rules over his children. Not as subjects, but as sons and daughters. This one who has the government on his shoulder can do all these things, and as a result, he is the prince of peace. In Hebrew, the word peace, shalom. We've talked about this. It's not just the absence of war, but it's everything the way it should be. Wholeness, economic, spiritual, social, wholeness. A good another way to describe shalom would be happily ever after. He's the prince of happily ever after. Indeed, the increase of peace will be, there will be no end. Because he will put to end all war. Look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is actually an allusion to ex, uh, Ezekiel 39, in which the prophet talks about a final battle between good and evil, the forces of God and the forces of Satan. And at the very end, when Satan and all of his army is defeated, what they do is they go and they gather all of the weapons and they put them in a pile and they burn them. Because there will be no more need for weapons anymore. Because there will be peace on earth because of the Prince of Peace. The question we have to ask is this one called Jesus, the Prince of Peace, has come. So why is there not peace now? World War I, it was called the Christmas Truce, though that was an unofficial name for officially there was no truce. It began Christmas Eve 24, December 1914, when the German troops began decorating their trenches with Christmas things and Christmas trees. They began singing Christmas carols. The British responded by singing Christmas carols of their own. They started shouting Christmas greetings to each other. Merry Christmas. And then some German troops held up Christmas trees with a sign that says, We know shoot, you know shoot. Thousands of troops streamed across no man's land, strewn with rotting corpses. They sang Christmas carols, exchanged photographs of loved ones, shared rations, played football, even roasted some pigs. Soldiers embraced men they had been trying to kill a few short hours before. Bruce Barron's father, who served throughout the war, wrote, I wouldn't have missed that unique and weird Christmas day for anything. I spotted a German officer, some sort of lieutenant, I should think, and being a bit of a collector, I intimated to him that I had taken a fancy to some of his buttons. And so he removed some of his, and I removed some of mine, and we exchanged them. The last thing I saw was one of my machine gunners, who was a bit of an amateur hairdresser in civil life, cutting the unnaturally long hair of a docile German who was patiently kneeling on the ground while the automatic clippers crept up the back of his neck. Well, a shudder ran through the high command on either side. Here was a disaster in the making. A hundred thousand men participated 
in the Christmas truce unofficially. Generals on both sides declared the spontaneous peacemaking to be treasonous and subject to court-martial. By March 1915, the fraternization movement had been eradicated and the killing machine put back in full operation. By the time of armistice in 1918, 15 million men would be slaughtered. See, on Christmas Day, we see just a picture of peace. Because only Jesus can bring peace. But there are those who are opposed to peace. In fact, who see Jesus as an affront to peace. He's the divider. He divides people. Why can't he just take his place on the lower level with the pantheons and the other gods? Because there can only be peace when Jesus is ruler of the world and ruler of our hearts, not servant. See, if it's one thing the, Assyrian, the Israelites hopefully learned in Assyria, it was this, that they can't manage their own life. Hopefully we've learned this too, that we need a right ruler. See, we want Jesus to be an advisor, a friend. We've got this thing all figured out. I've got the ruler in my life. If you want to know what he looks like, just look in the mirror. And I've got this thing all figured out. But I'm going to keep Jesus. In fact, I'm going to put him on my board of advisors. But you see, Jesus is not going to do that. He will only be your peace when he is your prince. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Whoever seeks to lose his life will save it. But whoever saves it will lose it. See, one day this one, the Prince of Peace, will come to rule the earth. And there will be no question who is ruler. In fact, the scriptures say that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But for now, in this interim time, his call is to rule you and me. People sometimes ask me, what is this thing called the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is very simple. It's the place where Jesus is the king. If Jesus is king here, then Jesus, the kingdom of God, is here. And if Jesus is king in your heart, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus desires to bring peace just like he did on that day in World War I. Jesus is the rescuer. Jesus is the ruler. But Jesus is also the romancer. You know, if you look at all great fairy tales, there's something that lies in the center of them. And that's love. Isn't it? Beauty and the Beast. Cinderella and the Prince. Love is in the center of them. And so we must ask the question, what is the motivation for this fairy tale called Christmas? The clue can be found in verse 7 at the very end of this passage. Where all of these things are said, what the Lord will do, and then it says this one sentence, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now this should, first of all, open our eyes to something amazing. Many of us think of God as he's this automaton in the sky, this giant impersonal force who's pulling strings in the universe. But if you read the Bible, you will see a picture of a God who's quite different. It's a God who's personal, a God who laughs, a God who has sorrow, a God who's angry, a God who displays a variety of emotions, even zeal. 
This word zeal is very interesting. Queen up is the word in Hebrew. It's used 41 times throughout the Old Testament. But the vast majority of times, it's not translated zeal. It's translated jealousy. The jealousy of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jealousy. Well, we all know jealousy. Isn't that kind of petty? Jealousy is when you, you know, someone else gets the promotion and you get upset and jealous you wanted it, or someone else has that clothes and you want those clothes and so you're jealous. That's, jealousy is petty. But I want to suggest to you that there's not only a petty jealousy, but there's a holy jealousy as well. I remember it was my 15th, gosh, one way, no, my 10th anniversary. Don't turn that on. 10th anniversary. And my wife and I, we were going to St. Lucia to celebrate our 10th anniversary. And um, before we could get to the resort where we were, we had a stopover in this little city that wasn't a resort city. So my wife and I, hand in hand, decided, hey, we're here, we might as well go exploring. Well, that was quite interesting because we were the only white faces in a sea. And so we're walking along just trying to fit in a little bit. And this guy looks at my wife and he winks at her. And he gives a little, this kind of thing. Instantly, I'm at 110 degrees. I'm going to kill the guy. Okay, instantly. Now, why is that? Because I'm on my 10th anniversary with my wife, who belongs to me. So you better not wink at my wife. And then I looked around, and I saw all 50 of his friends. And I said to myself, I better just get the heck out of here with my wife, because this is one battle. I'm not going to lose. You see, I had holy jealousy because my wife belonged to me. She was mine, and I wasn't going to share her with anyone else. And my wife has a holy jealousy for me. You see, it's the jealousy of the Lord of hosts that will do this. He has a holy jealousy for you and me. In fact, is not the people of God referred to as the bride of Christ, beautifully dressed for her husband. And so this jealous God, this jealous Savior, this jealous Christ, will stop at nothing to have His people, even His death. His love is a self-sacrificial love. Before we can know the joy of liberation, Jesus Christ felt the pain of crucifixion. Before the weapons of war can be burned up, they must be used on his own body. See, Jesus Christ never faltered or wavered, going deep behind enemy lines until he found and rescued his beloved. So the question for us and the question for you today is this. See, many of us say, I know he can't rescue me. The question is, does he want to? And I want to tell you from the scriptures, it's clear that the jealousy of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So if there's one thing that you can do in this passage, the one thing I want you to do is to allow yourself to be loved by this one, this Savior. See, you don't have to get dressed up to go to the ball so that Prince Charming will notice you. We were recently talking about getting someone to help out with our house. My wife is working more hours with her counseling practice. And my wife's argument of not getting someone to help clean the house was simply this. I'd have to clean up my house in order for the house cleaner to come. I thought to myself, that's insane. 
But isn't that the way we are with God? Once I clean up my house, then I'll invite him in. Jesus Christ comes into the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali in the darkest place because his jealousy calls us, calls himself to come. So when you are looking at this Jesus, don't look at yourself. Look at him. When you think of Jesus, will he come? Don't look at your circumstances. Look at him who has proven that he will go through brick walls, through the walls of the tomb, to get you and me. He wants more than anything to bring you peace. But there's only one place that he will sit in your heart to be at. And that is, as prince, the jealousy the Lord of hosts will lose. Embrace it. Whatever your situation right now, and you will know his peace because he has come to reign in your hearts. Let's pray.